in this conversation and and in tons of conversations you must have on this program, you're talking about efficiency. It's yeah. getting to what you want faster, you know? And I guess what I'm advocating is the opposite of that. <laughs> I know it's an uphill battle. And it's the slow algorithm. Movement. Yeah, it's not necessarily the way of the future. But I prefer going the long way around, learning a lesson through trial and error. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, New York Times music critic Ben Ratliff comes on the show to be a grumpy old man in the age of algorithmic playlists. No, uh, not really. He's not that grumpy. He's actually written a great new book about how we, him, you, me, kids these days, listen to music when every song is at our fingertips. And yes, sometimes we can just let Spotify and Pandora take over and feed us music that feels almost too perfect for our tastes. That's coming up in a minute. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Can I tell you a number? Yes. The number is... Actually, i got to get out my phone, funny enough, to remember this, because... Okay, the number is, actually, according to Apple, they released data that shows that the average iPhone user unlocks their phone 80 times a day. I believe it. You believe it? Absolutely. I would say I may even even do it more than that, unfortunately. I'd say it's about right. For maybe a certain age group. Like, I can't imagine my mom does that, but I definitely do. She's, like, twice a day. Yeah. Like, unless it rings, she's not going to look at it. 80 is, if you're up for, like, what, 16 hours a day, that's five times an hour? That does seem like a lot, but not far. I could say, yeah, three to five times an hour. It depends on the hour. Like, if you're working and you're busy, obviously you don't have time. But if I'm working and I'm busy, I'm probably still thinking about it. It's like a sick... You're thinking about unlocking your phone. I don't know if they can measure that yet, but they probably will be able to. Yeah, one day. Let's get a little more context on this 80 times a day number from Haley Mungia, who does social media and is also a writer for 538. Hi, Haley. Hi. Welcome welcome back. Thank you. Uh, I, I actually don't know whether... 80 seems like a lot or a little to me. Every time I think about this number, I like go back and forth. I mean, it didn't necessarily seem like that much to me. But when you think about the fact that it's just unlocking and it's not really even people checking their phones. um, So meaning you kind of have to space out for a while for your phone to to even lock. Right. People are doing more checks within the Mm -hmm. locking cycles. Yeah. So there was some research done in 2013 that found that people actually look at their phones about 150 times a day. And so when you think that you unlock your phone half as much as you look at it. I guess it kind of checks out. Yeah. Do we have any sense of whether it's like a bunch of super users who are checking their phone, you know, a hundred times mm-hmm. an hour bringing up the average? So we don't really have a sense of that. There have been some other studies from outside of Apple that found that people unlock their phones like 130 times a day. And so it seems like those would be the power users. But Apple is saying that 80 times is is the average among all iPhone users. And the other thing that Apple announced was that 89% of iPhone users uh, use either fingerprint or the uh, numeric passcode to unlock their phones. What are the, what's the other option? The what's, other option is just that you swipe oh, and there's the no security. Thing. Oh, at there's all. no security. So that mm-hmm. means that 11% of iPhone users just don't have a passcode right. of any kind. Right. Oh, maybe mm-hmm. that's the interesting thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you have any sense of how often you check your. I'm like. <laughs> totally. Since I heard this, that's totally self-conscious. Yeah, I am too. Um, I don't know. That's still, it's 80 still seems like a lot, but I feel like I'd probably do it a lot unconsciously. And so. All right. 
Yeah. Well, Haley, thank you very much. Thank you. Ben Ratliff is jazz and pop critic at the New York Times, one of the panelists on their music podcast and the author of Every Song Ever. Should I read the subtitle? Do you like subtitles? 20 Ways to Listen in an Age of Musical Plenty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. Welcome to What's the Point? Thanks a lot. One of the things I like about this book is that that you don't slip into like old fogeyism or like get off my lawn ism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's a lament a little bit at the heart of this book, but you're not just bemoaning kind of kids these days in the way that they listen to music as compared to the way that I fell in love with music. Sure. Yeah, because I don't think it's bad. I mean, I think that the way that people listen naturally these days whether it's through song by song through YouTube clips or um, through recommendation engines or whatever is authentic, you know, and um, it doesn't have to be listening to entire albums through through uh, tube preamps. It could be. That's a good way to listen. It doesn't <laughs> that doesn't tire out your ears. And you know, I mean, there's a lot to be said for listening in that way. But I mean, you know it's fine it's fine however you listen is fine and also no i don't i don't have any agenda about you know new music versus old music it was better in the old days or anything like that i i I just do not feel i mean it is kind of your job to fall in love with new music in in some ways so yeah um but how do you define the the central problem if you even want to call it that that you're trying to or central question that you're trying to tackle here well the question is you know, we adapt so quickly to changes in technology in terms of how we consume culture that we often don't stop and say, okay, mark this moment. Look where we've gotten to. Look how far we've come. I just feel like um, here we are. We all of a sudden have instant access to an enormous amount of music. And that's a very exciting thought for anybody who is interested about music, who cares about music, who who is really turned on by the idea of like – a library, like a huge library that we have permanent access to. So, all right, we've got it now. We didn't, I don't know, before Spotify was introduced in the United States, when it six, seven years yeah. ago, something like that. Basically, we didn't. Now we do. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to be active listeners or are we going to be passive listeners? Um, streaming services uh, have gotten very sophisticated with recommendation engines and and figuring out ways to help you feel less anxious about all the abundance. Okay, fine. So are you going to take that completely and lose your your own curiosity? You're going to let them take over or what? You know. So so my book is just um suggesting a vocabulary to start thinking about how we can access music that we don't know, how we can recognize something familiar in what we don't know, and how we can make connections to keep pushing into the unknown and find out about more and feel that it's about us, that it has something to do with what we already know. Well, why do you use that word anxious? Why do you think that having every every song at your fingertips is inherently going to bring because up anxiety? That's all, that's all I ever hear. In the rhetoric around Oh, there's so much out there. All I hear is anxiety. Is you know, oh, it's a problem. It's such a problem. The paralysis of choice or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel shut down. I just don't know what to do. That's how people, you know, people fall into patterns of talking about culture, 
And that's the sort of cliche thing that people fall into. It's a problem. I need help with my problem. But hasn't music always kind of been music discovery always been about recommendation like mm -hmm. even sure before right we had a an older sibling who was really into yeah. music or yeah. we went to camp or like you're zach braff and natalie portman like takes her headphones off and forces you oh, to listen yeah, yeah. to a shin song or sure, whatever sure so why is an algorithm any different than that because the algorithms don't know who you are but they pretend that they do <laughs> i mean look one-to-one -one recommendation from human to human is like, I mean, that's the best there is. It doesn't get any better mm -hmm. than that. It's me saying to you, I know a little bit about you. I'm looking in your eyes. I'm trying to, to figure out what kind of person you are. I have a notion that you might like such and such. It's such a, it's, that's like human warmth, you know? So that's great. That will continue forever, I hope. And, you know, people used to listen to the radio in hopes that they would discover something new. Well, they still do, I guess. Yeah. But again, that's, that's a DJ who is reaching a certain market, perhaps, or if it's a freeform DJ doesn't know what you like, doesn't know who you are, doesn't really know who's listening. So if, if he plays something that you like, that's just luck. And dumb luck is great. Um, the thing about the recommendation engines is this sort of like, or the streaming services and the recommendation engines, that if you like X, you'll like Y thing. It's sort of like those creepy... Um, roles in movies of people who want to be somebody's friend and say, you know, I, I thought you'd like this. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd like this. Uh, so uh, that's weird. It's like a game of, of gotcha in a weird way or like a... Well, the problem is that listeners are being reduced to listener profiles. You know, like you, you, are, not a, you are not a human being anymore. And this, this comes up on this show all the time that, you know, your past activity determines your future activity. Mm -hmm. And so often the kind of wonderful moments in life and certainly with music discovery are the ones where you just take like a total left turn or right turn for a, a very sort of small reason. You know, sure. you overhear someone you like mention a band or you just like grab something out of a store because you like the cover and then all of a sudden it's just like it's yeah. this wormhole. Yeah. But – so I was um, at a conference yesterday and happened to hear a presentation from a developer at Spotify about how they make their algorithm. And I like furiously started jotting down notes because I knew I was going to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for context, I, my impression is that they really do think about this and the recommendation isn't let's make our machine as smart as possible. They want a human element to it. So they have like a four different ways that they build their algorithm. So one is they actually go through each song and like add tags about, you know, what kind of music is, I mean, I think this is sort of like what that music genome project was doing, you know, kind of what kind of tone is this? What kind of instrumentation is this? And so forth. Right. They also have, you know, machine learning that just sort of automatically processes a song, but then there's a real social element to it as well. You know, who do you follow? What right. are they listening to? And that's not part of the Pandora music genome. Exactly. Problem, uh, thing. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and the other thing they did, which is totally fascinating to me, was contextual understanding of a song, mm -hmm. meaning they'll go scour the web. And if a song is mentioned on a blog post somewhere, on a blog that happens to cover a particular kind of music or mentioned alongside a different other song, that somehow works its way in as well. So it feels yeah. like a more nuanced 
ecosystem yeah. than just some algorithm saying, you listen to X, so we're going to give you Y. Right. At the same time, it's a, it's an Ouroboros. You know, it's just like, it's just the snake eating its tail <laughs> forever and ever. I mean, Spotify the Discover Weekly really fascinates me. I am amazed by it and admire it, and I loathe it passionately. Um, you mean as a concept or as a like you no, click as a play real thing. and you don't like the music? No, it's, it's a real you. thing. I mean, you know, I look at it, I look at it. I, I'm sure I look at it once a week, mm-hmm. and every once in a while they will hit me with something that that is almost embarrassingly right. You know, it's <laughs> like they, wow, they got me. Damn. Um, it, it'll be a little obscure too, you know. Um, but at the same time. Because it the, the the machine knows that sometimes I look up obscure things. They've tagged me as like a cool cat, you know, or something. So a lot of the recommendations that they give me are uh, sort of, you know, indie garbage that I don't care about. Or um, I listen to jazz a lot when it comes to jazz because they've tagged me as a cool cat. It's only the jazz that, say, Pitchfork cares about. I, you know, I'm not sure how this happens, but there's a... They understand what coolness is in a sort of very slick uh, sort of media-ish way. Um, I think about this a lot, you know. I mean, for instance, one of the coolest, one of the dopest records of the last year, I think, is this uh, Baroque violinist Rachel Podger playing music of the 17th century composer named Franz Ignaz Bieber. Did you use the word dope in your review of her piece? <laughs> no, no I, I haven't written about it because I'm not a classical music critic. But it's it's such a great record. I mean, it's so beautiful. But Discover Weekly would never feed that to me because it thinks I'm cool and because it doesn't think that uh, 17th century music played by a Baroque violinist is cool. And that's, you, that's my sense of things. But do you have faith? That it could ever get to that point? Uh, well, not now. But it's it could. Yeah, it could. I mean, these people who are on the front lines of this thing are really smart. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I, I do feel pessimistic about the whole project. I do. I mean, I do, I do feel a sense that if the great push – of the really of the smartest minds in this business is moving toward uh, efficiency in curating for you in um, you know delivering you what it knows that you will like from the great abundance. Well, something's being lost, isn't it? I mean, isn't 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 the thing that's being lost you and your efforts to figure out what you like and what you respond to? I think I don't know if I. I'm fully on board with your yeah. critique, but I do think that there's a real difference of experience when you kind of search for something yeah. in Spotify versus let the algorithm. Like, I think I have yes. faith that the algorithm, because I know that there's a sort of human element to it, could get there. And there's moments where, like, it gives me exactly what I need. But search and be- feels very limiting because it feels like. I'm taking what I want to, you know, the mood I'm in right now, what I'm listening to, sort of doing the work in advance and then going and finding music as opposed to sort of with a non-digital 
experience, sometimes you just like music is sort of forced upon you, right? You don't have everything at your fingertips. You have your limited collection of music. Yeah. And sometimes you have to listen to quote unquote, you know, depressing music when you're happy. And then that provides a new experience. Whereas yes, now, exactly. if I'm happy, I'm going to like actively search for happy music and listen to only that and, and possibly you're gonna, cut off some other experience. And you're going to get an off the rack notion of happiness. Right. From, you know, fr- from somebody. That's a big part of your book is this sort of match between the listener's experience and mood and what they bring to the table and then what an, an artist brings to the table and sort of the, you know, the alchemy that happens when those two meet. Uh, okay. So let's go back to the thing about um, I- emotional programming, uh-huh. you know, music for sad moods, music for happy moods, whatever. Right. And there is a mood tab on Spotify. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that in reality, emotions are often paradoxical. In other words, you can feel a kind of defeated joy. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, like, that's actually how emotions work, I think. But the streaming services are not going to be able to sell that to you because that's too complicated a, a thought. I bet, you know what? I bet you defeated joy will be a tab on Spotify within the next five years. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Um, I think the big idea underneath my book, which, by the way, you know, after each chapter provides a playlist. A playlist, which sometimes you can go find on Spotify, I yeah. noticed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the big thought underneath my book is that um, listening to music is, is a really creative act. It's not just passive. Listening to music is one of the things that helps you discover your humanity. Through listening to music, you learn how to walk and talk and move and have have relationships and fall in love and speak different languages and all you know like you pick up things from music that really increase your humanity i mean music is mysterious it really is so i think that i just don't want to have robots completely in control of my sense of discovery How do you think about, um, I mean, you were touching on it just now, but, you know, identity and sort of crafting your identity through music. Mm. I think there was probably a time when more likely that you would like draw bright lines around the kind of music you liked and that would really be totally central to your identity. And also it would, you would identify kind of music you you hated was yeah. a, and, you know, was a big part of sort of crafting your, your identity through music. And yeah. so, you know, if you were a punk fan, you hated New Wave or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I wonder, and I think there's just a lot more natural eclecticism now because of the way that we consume music. Yeah. But does that mean that music has less of a role in crafting identity? Um, you mean because everything's blurring into each other? Yeah, that I mean, it just feels like no, actually, it's harder to say right now. I hate this kind of music, and I only like this kind of music, and I'm only you know. Yeah, well, I think that that's that that always was ridiculous, and that's <laughs> and that still is ridiculous, and it's a great lesson when you when it finally dawns on you that that's ridiculous. That's a great moment in in anyone's life, right? But that's part of, but that's also. I mean, you just basically summed up all of adolescence, which is, you know, <laughs> you do it and it and it's important yeah. at the moment. And then yeah, and yeah. then five years later, you look back and you're like, that was ridiculous. Yeah. But wasn't but isn't there maybe now I'm getting into old fogeyism, but it wasn't, you know, isn't there sort of like value in 
really drawing lines around your musical identity. Sure, sure. there is value. And I think actually there's just more there's more modes of identity now. Like mm-hmm. where if in the past there was punk over here and metal over here. Now there's punk with a certain particular stripe of metal in it, you know? Oh. Or if there was jazz over here and uh funk over here or whatever. Now there's jazz with some stripe of funk. I mean, there's just there's more hybrids. And more tastes that coalesce around all all these very specific hybrids. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's fine. That's natural. And all these different hybrids express a different aesthetic, a different way of looking at the world, a different way of moving. And sometimes they they also are in line with you know different websites or publications or styles of dress or whatever you know do you think about um when i I was reading your book i was thinking about kind of depth Mm -hmm. and width and sort of shallow but but wide music listening versus you know narrow but deep music listening Mm -hmm. do you feel like we're being pushed in one direction or another do you worry that we don't go that we're not being encouraged to go as deep as perhaps we used to? I mean, I, I think that we are tempted to fall into comfort zones because music and emotional comfort are closely related. And I think that our comfort zones can go on forever now. They're, they're, they're broader. There's more there um, with the help of the recommendation engines that just that expand those comfort zones mm-hmm. just, just enough so that you can live in them for the rest of your <laughs> lives. So that they have you on the hook for the for the rest of your life, um, yeah. I think that that's one way of listening, um, and the other way of listening is breadth. And I hope that the recommendation engines, the streaming services, will get better at encouraging us to be the kind of people who say, "I love Justin Bieber, but I also love." Franz Ignaz Bieber, the 17th century Baroque composer. Are spelled the same way? <laughs> uh, the older, the old Bieber is B-I-B-E-R. Right. And which is the one who just got dreadlocks? <laughs> I think that was Franz, right? Yeah. 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 When you were talking just now, it kind of made me think of dating apps. And oh. I mean, there's sort of a parallel conversation happening wow. in that about whether it changes the way we think about love and oh, fall in man. love and, you know, whether the fact that there's always the the next person you could match with, yeah. you know, kind of affects whether you yeah. sort of commit to the person you happen to be on a date with right now. Yeah. I kind of think that's bullshit, but it is something that I know people are, are talking about. Yeah. And I wonder if the possibility of always being able to go to the next song means that you're not going to go down the wormhole that you happen to be in right now. That's a very good point. Yes. I think, I think that that is right. We're talking about, in, in this conversation and in, and in tons of conversations you must have on this program, you're talking about efficiency. It's yeah. getting to what you want faster, you know? And I guess what I'm advocating is the opposite of that. <laughs> and I, I know it's an uphill battle. Uh, and it's the slow algorithm. Movement. Yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily the way of the future. Um, but, but maybe it's the way of forever. I don't know. I mean, I, I prefer going the long way around learning a lesson through trial and error and learning everything around, uh, whatever the next choice looks like. It's and you, to be. So you actually make a really good point in the book about sometimes, you know, you have to listen to music that like you just don't like, and that yeah. teaches you lessons. And yeah. I guess the attempt to always feed you something that 
that you will like. And, and, and that always being the goal, I guess, shuts off a lot of possible experience. You don't have to like everything. Um, there's lots, there, there is music I don't like. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I do think that patience, uh, patience is a virtue. (laughs) (laughs) What do you, what do you make of the state of the album right now? And do you, think it's disappearing do you lament that it's disappearing well i really do i really do like albums yeah because i do i like doing anything for a long time you know so uh yeah 45 minute record or an hour long record i think that's great that's enough time for me to actually get somewhere um and i think that as long as there are artists who are sort of take themselves seriously and um think in terms of a of a form ways there are going to be albums i mean i understand that the the delivery systems push against that because you know we because of everything we've been talking about we look up something on youtube we're not going to watch something for an hour on youtube um anyway i just i don't think i don't think albums are going away is my short answer it's very tempting to say yeah the end of the album it's already happened or it's nigh or whatever no, I don't think they're going away. That I think was a like maybe seven or eight years ago lament, or you know, people were wringing their hands over that. The weird thing that's happened lately, when you were talking about sort of an artist who takes himself seriously and sort of crafting an experience for a listener, this weird resurgence of the music video and mm-hmm. the way that sort of artists seem to now kind of roll things out. Maybe it's not with an album, but you know, Kanye West like clearly wants. To present a sort of full experience as yes. he gives us his art, okay. which is, I think, pretty admirable. Thank you for for reframing the conversation because that that really is that's what we should be talking about. Is um, it's not the album per se as a unit of art that's that's lost its value. It's the way the album is prepared for and released. Right. I think that a lot of artists are just tired of that. They would rather give us their work on a rolling basis or um, or or keep keep surprising us somehow rather than saving up all their energy for the big album release, mm-hmm. which is always screwed up by somebody leaking it and then doing an old fashioned tour, which, you know, th- they're not that exciting anymore. Right. Though they are one of the last surefire ways to make money, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, that's what I hear. Um, <laughs> but, but that business is, is changing a lot too. I think the future is going to be in different and unpredictable kinds of performances, not just necessarily big artists playing at X arena. I know you, you're not like this book is not about platforms. Uh, yeah. This book is about sort of the experience of listening and so forth. But how do you think about the different platforms that we have now for listening to music? You know, we've touched on Pandora versus Spotify versus buying albums and then obviously turning to your record player or yeah. listening to the radio. Do you feel like one particular platform at least sets up people to listen to music the way that you want them to i won't be really happy actually until there is a streaming platform that gives adequate information about a piece of music when you look up a piece of music on apple music or uh, spotify or whatever you're getting very little information about it what do you mean information like anything beyond the name of the song the artist 
and the name of the album, you might get a, a tiny little picture, mm-hmm. a tiny little image of, you know, the, the album cover or something. But um, there's just – there's not much there. I mean, I'm talking about information about the producer, about, you know, when it was recorded, who the musicians were. You're looking at me skeptically. I'm looking at you a little skeptical because – Though I guess what you were describing are credits, but I mean, it feels to me like, you know, if we think about vinyl, yeah. one of the things that I love about that is it, it presents you with so little information. I mean, you, you obsess over the cover image because that's all you have. And it was so, there was no Google to go and find out about an artist. It, it, everything was contained within sort of yeah, but that, I, well, that cover art and that, and that I, record. Doesn't it often list the musicians? Yes, it and, does. And the it publishing does. information. But, and, you know, there's, but even there's that is more of a tease a than anything. You know, who is this guy? Oh, I feel like this trumpet player played on this other album that I sure. love or whatever. And, there, sure. and it's, and, but there was a pretty hard limit to the amount of information you could get. Yeah, sort of quickly about an album, and so everything had to be sort of contained within the well, song you were engaging. It with. does give you a certain, but it did give you a certain amount, um, and it wasn't all uniform. It, uh, different records gave you information in different in different right. ways. You know, you had to interpret. You had to do some interpretation. You know, you had to figure out, okay, what what is this information I'm being given? What what can I learn from it? Um, the uniformity of the way the tiny bit of information yeah. is delivered to you through the streaming services is something that that I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to think that this was an old fogey position, but I'm not so sure it is. I, I want more information. This is what we're all about these days. What do you think of the related artists tab? Because, you know, I think one of the ways that I loved discovering music was trying to sort of map a scene in my head and sort of like trying to discover a scene bit by bit, piece by piece. And that related artist, I find myself, you know, I f- see an artist and then Spotify tells me related artists. And then all of a sudden it's like the scene is just like, you know, their context is just right there for me. Mm-hmm. I, that feels a little disappointing sometimes. You mean because you didn't have to do the work I yourself? I didn't have to do the work to discover it. Then at the same time, you know, I can immediately click on something else and know that that's probably, if I'm feeling this, then yeah. I can go and listen to yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's useful as a quick reference. Um, you know, uh, if you look up Cannonball Adderley, you're going to see um, Horace Silver in the related artist field. But um, I think that one needs to approach this with huge amounts of skepticism. You know, they don't know who you are. They, <laughs> they, they, they know they, – they just don't know everything. And it's never going to be enough. Uh, you know, as a quick reference is fine, but um, related artists, related artists, related in what way? Right. You know, through through a fixed notion of genre, which is totally suspect these days, as far as I'm concerned. Um, through patterns of, of purchasing, who buys the stuff, and then it comes down to you. Well, how do you want? Wh- who do you want to relate Cannonball Adderley to? You might want to relate Cannonball Adderley to Franz Bieber. <laughs> See, I'm noticing a pattern. You seem to relate everything back to Franz Bieber. Um, do you think it's easier or harder to discover different kinds of music? Do you – I don't know. Just how do you think about someone in starting that process with you know an algorithm as possibly their main yeah. guide? Yeah. Um, I think it's – I think it could be really easy. Uh, and also um, – Often the reasons for discovery are not necessarily about music. They could be about movies. They could be about video games. Um, 
I mean, there's a whole way of learning about music through video games. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's what 13-year-olds are, are really aware of. Um, through the games themselves, or also like, oh, you hear a song in a game and you think that it's amazing, and so you look it up on whatever, and, and it gives you related artists. And, yeah. and But chasing that, mm-hmm. right, that little yeah. tease, yeah. is actually very similar, I think, to the way that people have always discovered music, right? Yeah. I see a name in the credits on the back of some album, some yeah. record, and then I go find that person or i see one reference to one thing in some zine yeah and then i go find other zines and so so i mean i find myself too when i go down like a youtube wormhole sure that like curiosity that discovery that hunting yeah youtube still works for me we haven't talked about youtube that much either i mean that that's that's a weird thing too because you know if you look up a certain song often the first thing that comes up is going to be a youtube video of it yeah you know and so if you click on that and you just let it roll because now it rolls Mm -hmm. you don't have to touch it the range of things that are related to that song can be really weird they might be related in terms of media closeness like you know something to do with tv or like who knows what you know like what is this all about some other logic is at, is at work and it's not your logic that's the that's my sadness mm-hmm. uh ben ratliff thank you very much and congratulations on the book and just in general i'm a big admirer of your work so thanks, thanks for Jody. coming on thanks for having me Ben Ratliff's book is called Every Song Ever. I won't read the subtitle, but you should when you go and buy the book. And check out the New York Times music podcast as well. I actually wasn't a listener before, but I've been listening a bunch since Ben came in for a chat, and it is really great. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Jonathan Yales helped produce this episode, and we have studio help from Tony Chow. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Joel is often bleary-eyed when he does that, but this week Joel was particularly bleary-eyed for really good reason, because he and his wife Katie welcomed their son Finn into the world. I promised people I tried to give Joel the week off, but he really wanted to help with this episode. Anyway, Joel and Katie, congratulations. And the rest of you, go find Joel on Twitter and bug him for pictures of Finn. It's worth it. My name is Jody Avergan. You can find me on Twitter or email me at podcasts at 538.com with any ideas or comments about the show. A quick update on our data visualization challenge with Dear Data. We've been going through all the entries, the postcards you've sent, and we're figuring out the best way to post them all on the site for everyone to see. And of course, we'll follow up in the next few weeks on this show. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Next week, we're taking the week off. Don't worry, there are other 538 podcasts for you to listen to, or you can just head back into the archives and find an episode of this podcast that maybe you haven't heard yet. So, back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Mm-hmm.